And a big question in the scientists' minds is, why doesn't it have liquid water today? Why doesn't it have an atmosphere? What happened? And maybe if we can answer the question of what happened to Mars, that will better help us to understand Earth. Because in the grand scheme of things, in terms of life, we have a data point of one, and that's Earth. And in any scientific experiment, a data point of one is really, really bad. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. In today's episode, I interview Michael Cooney, who is a NASA engineer. So this was one of the cooler interviews that I've ever gotten to do. Mike wrote into the show and he's like, hey man, if you want to hear from someone at NASA, I work at NASA. And I was like, are you kidding me? Of course I want to interview someone at NASA. That would be great. So and Mike is like the coolest dude to interview for this. He's so down to earth and awesome. And uh, it, it, although he is one of the smartest engineers in the country, he is able to so clearly and easily communicate all the different things that he does. So we talk a lot about what he does for a living. We talk a lot about just NASA on on a broader term. And then um, as well, after he gives um, his advice for people that would want to work for NASA, which is probably around the one hour mark somewhere. So this is a little bit longer of an interview. It then goes on even longer as we talk about just kind of more like nerdy sci-fi concepts and stuff like that, because I really wanted to pick his brain about that. That's not necessarily part of the regular interview. So if you just want to hear about, you know, working at NASA and whatever, then after he gives his advice, feel free to stop listening. But if you want to hear a NASA guy's perspective on some interesting sci-fi concepts and just some, um, actually some more um, like, particle physics type stuff. Uh, We start to go into that after the one hour mark after he gives his advice. So without further ado, here is NASA engineer. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Blake, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, dude. So I think the first thing I want to start with is what is it like being basically a celebrity? I can't imagine much more of a... uh, a job than working for NASA where when you're at like a cocktail party or something and people are, you know, saying like, Oh, what do you do? You're like, I work for NASA that like everyone has to ask you all these questions in and just think you're like the coolest person that they've ever met. Well, uh, I wouldn't put it as a celebrity. And two, when I go to parties, mostly it's with other people who work at NASA. So we're all <laughs> kind of used to it. Yeah. So then it's more like, what do you do for NASA and stuff like that? Yeah, exactly. Um, I, since I was a little tiny boy, I actually always wanted to work for NASA. It was always my number one and number two dreams. Number one was an astronaut and number two is to be an engineer. So I'm basically living the dream at this point, which is awesome. That is awesome, dude. Are, that's actually a question that I didn't think about. I'm glad you just brought that up. To be an astronaut, do are there any astronauts that like were engineers or physicists and then they become astronauts or are astronauts typically like fighter pilots or something and then they become an astronaut all over the spectrum um there are astronauts who were test pilots and then there are astronauts who were engineers typically they tend to have phds Uh, there are a few astronauts that actually came from langley research center which is where i work um at least one of them was an engineer, and he he's actually back at Langley right now. Um, and then there are engineer, uh, astronauts who were teachers. They actually, the agency encourages teachers to apply. 
So is the door still open for you to become an astronaut one day, or is that now something that you don't really want to pursue? Oh, I would love to pursue it. Uh, The agency actually put out a call for astronauts earlier this year, and it was the record number of applicants. They had 16,000-some applicants for between 8 to 14 slots, which I attribute part of that is probably to the movie The Martian, which is drumming up a lot of interest in space. Do people, are some of the applicants just dudes like me who are like, that sounds awesome? Or are all 16,000 of those people like fully qualified candidates? I have honestly absolutely no idea. But when you look at it, the application minimum criteria is pretty low. You have to be a U.S. citizen. Um, You have to be kind of normal height. I think it's between roughly five feet and like six, seven. And you have to have a BS degree. So you have to have a science engineering type bachelor's degree. And that's basically it. But with 16,000 people, I'm sure they've got plenty of people to choose from. They got the cream of the crop. Yeah, totally. Totally. Cool, man. Um, so dude, let's let's first start out just talking a little bit about working at NASA in general. And I know you need to give this disclosure, so I'll help you out here that like anything that you say throughout this whole interview is completely your own opinion and not that of NASA's whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. Just right off the bat, I am not a spokesman for the agency. I'm more than happy to talk about anything and everything I do. Just don't misconstrue. I'm not speaking on behalf of the agency. Okay, cool. Um, so a little bit about me. I am an electrical engineer working at NASA Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia. Okay. Uh, which, which electrical engineering, I work on electronics. And that can be anything from designing power systems, so like batteries and power converters, uh, to avionics and spacecraft. So making them think and smart and uh, take in data. And then sensors as well. Spacecraft, you have to monitor spacecraft things, temperatures, pressures, and then you have to collect the scientific data because the reason we put a lot of these satellites in orbit and rovers on the other planet is to collect data, scientific data to answer a question. And we do that by having various kinds of sensors, be those cameras, um, spectrographs, you're measuring temperatures and pressures, say, when you enter Mars's atmosphere or you enter Earth's atmosphere. Um, A lot of what Langley works on is climate science, trying to answer questions about what is the climate doing now? What is it going to be doing in the future? Um, And various methods to measure those kind of, uh, that kind of data so we can answer those questions. So this is Um, something interesting that you mentioned mm -hmm. to me before the interview that I didn't know about, Mm -hmm. and I don't think most people would, how you just said, you know, that this is something that Langley specializes in. You were saying that each uh, NASA office or whatever you want to call it. Each NASA station has kind of their own specialty. Like this is what we do here on this campus. Yeah, exactly. You bring up a good point. So if you're going to launch a rocket, you're going to go down to Florida and Kennedy Space Center. If you want to deal with the International Space Station or the astronaut office, that's at Johnson Space Flight Center. Uh, then there are research centers, so Langley Research Center, where at Langley we do a lot of uh, primarily aeronautics research, which is the first A in NASA, um, and a little bit of space research. And if you want to build really big satellites like the James Webb Space Telescope, then you go up to Goddard in Maryland. Okay. Uh, there's also JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um, they are run by Caltech, and they're in California, and their specialty is rovers. They've built all the rovers that are on Mars right now, n- numerous which are still driving around on the planet. 
Now, I imagine that for any sort of major mission that there just needs to be massive amounts of communication between all of you guys. Uh, not necessarily. So the human spaceflight programs run out of Johnson. They tend to get most of their resources down there. Uh, for small projects of maybe a few people or a few million dollars, it'll entirely be run out of one center. If you're talking something like the uh, space launch system, the SLS rocket, that's run out of multiple centers with most of the work uh, being done at Marshall Space Flight Center. Okay, yeah. So like in that case, if you're working on like a major rocket or um, like landing something on Mars or whatever it is, it's like you guys will be taking care of some of the aeronautic stuff with it. Somebody else is going to be dealing with the rocket portion of it. Somebody else is going to be dealing with whatever portion of it, um, like whatever your specialty is. Exactly. Uh, and a case in point is one of the projects I'm working on right now. It's called Medley 2, and we love our acronyms. That's the Mars Entry, Descent, and Landing Instrumentation Number 2. Langley, we are in charge of the instrumentation. So we are designing the temperature sensors and the pressure sensors and all of the readout electronics to take that data. Whereas the science portion of it is run out of Ames Research Center, and they're over in uh, California, in Silicon Valley. So it's an example of a project where there's multiple centers uh, working together to accomplish a goal. Okay, cool. What, I guess, first, let's talk about like, what, like, what is it like just working with such brilliant people every single day, whether they be at your own office or you're talking to somebody that works at one of the other offices? I, I got to imagine it's like a pretty awesome thing for somebody who is really smart themselves to get to work around other people who are very, very smart. There's a lot of smart people at NASA, and there's also a lot of dedicated people at NASA. And one of the great things, too, about the agency is it requires people of every stripe. So at Langley, there's about 18, 1900 civil servants and a few more number of that than contractors. And it runs the gamut of there are electrical engineers, there's mechanical engineers, every kind of engineering then there's program managers, there's scientists, there's a lot of technicians who actually build the hardware and test the hardware. There's facilities to test the hardware. There's chambers to test the antennas. There's chambers, wind, cha uh, wind tunnel to actually test what this vehicle is going to do in the atmosphere. Um, there's thermal vacuum chambers where space is a vacuum. So we want to put our hardware in this big chamber, suck out all the air to see what's going to happen. Um, and then the thermal portion is space gets really, really hot when you're in the sun and really, really cold when you're not. So you have to test these spacecraft and systems. So we get to work with a huge variety of people, not to mention the lawyers and the accountants, uh, the outreach people. Education and outreach is a big portion of NASA's mission, just telling the public what we're doing uh, and working with school kids, high schoolers, college students to develop the next generation uh, of scientists, engineers. Yeah, this was such a cool thing that you mentioned in your email to me that NASA gives you guys 20% of your time. Like the, the, Google is very famous for this, giving their employees 20% of their time to work on like a personal project or like a personal idea of theirs to, you know, that maybe the company could pick up one day. And you were saying that NASA does 20% of your time to either work on your own ideas or to do community outreach. And yeah, like go give a talk at a local high school or a college or, you know, whatever it is. That is absolutely awesome. Like, how long has that been going on there? I don't know how long that program has been going on. We, we tend to refer to it as white space. And the, basically, the idea there is part of your time 
should be spent on trying to come up with the next great thing. If you're building 100% of your time to a project, it's really hard to come up with those breakthrough ideas. So the agency wants to set aside a little bit of your time to kind of think about something that's going to make the agency better. So how are we going to solve these problems in the future? Um, An example actually of that is uh, this week I was working on a project, a proposal on how how do we build an inflatable habitat on Mars? And so the principal investigator, he was sitting around and he came up with this idea and he submitted for this, um, this center research fund and they gave him a little bit of money so he could go out and hire some engineers to work on this idea in part of their time. Hmm. Uh, and then the other part of that equation is outreach. So NASA highly encourages individuals to go out to schools. Um, I, I really like going out to elementary and middle schools. I really love telling students who are incredibly interested about space what I do because I'm passionate about it. I love it, right? I made this my career. I made this my life. Uh, And then going out to career fairs as well and just spreading the good word. That's so cool, man. Like both sides of that is just so good. Do you think, I know you said that you don't know how long it's been in play exactly, but is there any sort of feeling possibly that the onus for giving you guys that white space and this time to develop the next big thing is because of things like SpaceX that I, I it, like SpaceX kind of leaped frog NASA in some technologies, despite the fact that it was just founded in 2002 and it is a whole bunch of independent people. But I think something that can happen so much when you are working on any project, like really hard, um, is you can just get this like hyper focus on on one single project and it's hard to like take a step back and look at like other technologies that you could be using or other things that might be able to um really help like move move things forward for you you know um yeah do you think that some of that like outside pressure and outside influence of seeing these private companies as it were being able to do these really successful things has kind of like changed the culture, changed what's going on at NASA at all? I think it might be encouraging that program or that unofficial program to stay around. But NASA's always from the beginning been about research. And you really, it's really hard to direct research. It's really hard to go to someone and say, I want you to sit down with an hour of your time today and come up with the next big thing. These ideas just spring up randomly. And as any culture, any research and development culture has to have some method to foster that innovation and that creativity. Uh, Google did it and they made it really famous through 20% time. But on some level, NASA's been doing this since the very beginning, even before NASA was founded, back when it um, was the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point, and and yeah, really good point about uh, needing to foster a good sort of research and development pipeline. I, I like I can't imagine how all that stuff works when you when you do have so many brilliant people in one place, like just deciding what to work on and what to be spending your time on. From a on a personal level, it comes down to what do you, what are you interested in, and generally the managers are incredibly supportive of if you have a good idea, pursue it, see if it works. And if it doesn't fail quickly, as the kind of common saying is, <laughs> yeah. and, and move on, right? Because you don't want to go down this road investing in technologies which are, aren't going to go anywhere. Yeah. And then on the big picture, you raised a good point. How do you actually decide 
what is a good technology or idea worth pursuing and what's not. And I don't think there's any good answer to that, especially in today's always constrained budget environment. There's never enough money to implement the great ideas. So you have to have a roadmap. And NASA does. They have a technology roadmap where they've clearly listed out in bullet points. This is what we need technology wise in order to accomplish our goals. And one of those goals is Mars in the 2030s. And so there's a laundry list of technologies that they need to answer. How are we actually going to get to Mars? How are we going to enter the atmosphere? Because Mars is an incredibly thin atmosphere. Um, how are you, how are you going to keep humans alive for the 500 plus days it takes to get there? Cause you're not going to be able to refill your water or air supply and the international space station, they're constantly bringing up air and water to resupply them. That's not going to cut it. If we have a 500 day mission. Yeah, totally. Um, radiation is a really, really big concern in space. If you had a big solar storm, what's it going to do to the crew? Um, another mission that I'm working on right now is trying to address that question with a CubeSat, which is a small, um, roughly shoebox sized spacecraft. Um, one of the scientists came up with some these of these new innovative coatings that are really, really thin, but help resist radiation. So we're designing the spacecraft to put it in low Earth orbit to test how effective this shielding is, because you can't actually do that on the ground. You have to go to space. And that's a great example of CubeSats are a relatively new concept developed in the, the 90s, where you've got a very standardized little platform to go into low Earth orbit for relatively low cost to test these ideas quickly. You no longer need a $400 million launch vehicle to get into space. And it dramatically lowers the barrier of entry to space. And we're starting to see a lot of companies take advantage of that. Um, There's some, there's a planetary resources in California. um, And there's a few imaging companies in the Bay area who are doing exactly that building small satellites, looking at the earth. That's really cool, man. And that actually touches on something I wanted to ask you about. Cause in, in clearly I, I didn't have a full grasp on like the gravity of how those CubeSats could be, um, used. So that's something that you explained to me briefly in your email was the CubeSats you were working on. And it just, it, it kind of, it, it, it kind of made me think like, why aren't we working on, on bigger, crazier, more like, um, audacious goals, you know, like bigger things for NASA. Is it just that people like me that think that are too stupid to understand that, like that, that these things that we are working on are absolutely on the path to helping us achieve these bigger goals. Like, Hey, let's take some people to Mars or something like that. But there are so many little boxes that need to get checked along the way that maybe some of these full blown projects that are one of these little boxes look little to someone like me, but it's actually a pretty big deal. And there's no way that we would ever be able to go to Mars if we didn't check off all these little boxes. Every big space project always has a series of incremental steps. We didn't suddenly land on the moon with Apollo 11. We had the Mercury program to show we could get humans in orbit. The Gemini program showed you could dock things in space together, showed that you could actually go outside of your spacecraft for an extended period of time. Then there were the early Apollo missions where we launched stuff into low Earth orbit. And then we launched a number of missions that just went around the moon just to prove you could get there and back. And then we landed on the moon. And that's what we're doing now with Mars and space tech in general. We have a series of technology demonstrators where CubeSats are great at that. You take a very, very focused platform and maybe you're getting 80% of your science, but you're doing it at a fraction of the cost. 
And CubeSats are opening up that door, just like the commercial launch market is opening up low Earth orbit. Previously, there were a few nations that could actually launch uh, vehicles into space. And then that started to open up a little bit in the U.S. You had Lockheed uh, and Boeing launching in, into orbit. And now we've got SpaceX dramatically lowering the cost to orbit and a host of other companies who are explicitly targeting the CubeSat-sized uh, market, a few hundred kilograms to orbit. So I, I look at that as a fantastic, great thing that company like SpaceX is dramatically lowering the cost of entry to orbit which ultimately helps NASA because it saves NASA hundreds of millions of dollars to get a satellite into orbit. So you can either build more satellites or you can take that money you were going to spend and now develop it on those technologies to get to Mars. Now, why in your mind was SpaceX able to do that and not NASA? SpaceX had a very clearly defined goal to lower the cost of entry to orbit by a very, very driven individual. And they weren't answering to Congress. <laughs> that, NASA, that is a very good point. NASA is under the executive branch. The president is nominally the boss. And NASA comes out with a proposed budget every year. They say, we want to spend X amount of dollars on this, X amount of dollars on that. And then the president proposes that to Congress. But ultimately, Congress controls the purse strings. They are the ones who determine how much money every part of the federal government gets, including NASA. So just because NASA requests money for something doesn't mean they're going to get it. And that makes long-term planning very, very difficult. When you know you have money for a year, you don't know if you're going to have that same amount of money next year. Um, and that's actually something that we see, we're seeing happening literally today, right now. The House of Representatives has a bill and they want to give NASA more money than the agency requested. But flip side of that is they want to say that that money has to be used for specific projects. And if that passes, then the agency is going to have to say, well, the Congress by law said we have to spend a few hundred million dollars for a Europa mission. So now we have to take the, this big machine, which is NASA, and figure out what did Congress intend and let's go do that. Hmm. That's very interesting. Where SpaceX is answerable to one person, Elon Musk, and what he wants, he gets. So why, I, I guess still, it, it's interesting to me that, um, that, like that, that should seem like such an obvious thing, right? Like as the, the number one project for, let's say the past like 20 years is how can we make it a ton less expensive to get these things in space? Like what, why, it, why is that not like the thing, you know, I guess to your point about being, um, uh, beholden to Congress and budgets and stuff like that, like I, I get I, that that's interesting. Well, those are, on some level, different things. Congress has changing priorities over time, and the agency does as well. And part of NASA's long-term goal is always exploration, pushing the bounds. And I, I personally think it's great that private companies now are stepping up and assuring access to low-Earth orbit. That frees up NASA's money to go do the really hard things. Chances are you're not going to see a private company build a multi-billion dollar space telescope purely for science. And that's what James <laughs> Webb is doing. Yeah. Chances are you're not going to see private companies spending hundreds of millions of dollars on satellites to look down on Earth for meteorological purposes, just to improve weather forecasting. And when it comes down to it, weather forecasting 
is largely done by NASA and NOAA weather satellites. And every single person in the world benefits from that. But a private company is probably not going to invest the money to do that. Of course, yeah, there's not enough money in it. And one of the long-term big goals of NASA is to study climate change. And that requires very large, complicated spacecraft in orbit for tens of years to monitor the weather patterns over long periods of time. And that's the kind of science that private companies are probably not going to do. And that's where an agency like NASA can step in and fulfill that role to answer these really difficult scientific questions that don't have a clear um, monetary value. So you just bring up an interesting point about some of these things that the, these other goals of NASA's and these things, the, these ways that NASA is like helping humanity that maybe humanity doesn't even think about because all that we think of is like the moon and Mars and whatever else. Like what are some other big things that NASA is doing for us that people like me might not really be thinking about? Big and small, um, scratch resistant coatings on glasses that was partially developed at NASA because they needed a solution to keep the visors on the space suits from getting scratched. Um, NASA needed a way to reduce uh, vibration and loads to astronauts when they were being launched into space. So they developed memory foam and now memory foam mattresses are everywhere. Yeah. So that's an example of a, a small technology that NASA helped to develop. Um, life support systems are always a big concern uh, in space and water filtration is a big deal. So some of that technology has been spun off and that improves the ability to get clean water, say, in large parts of Africa. So that's helping people on a day-to-day basis. Um, longer term, I've talked a lot about climate change. NASA's trying to understand what happens to the climate system long term and how is that going to affect the future so we can plan for it Uh, if we can predict what the weather is going to be tomorrow next week next month next year we can plan for that and ultimately save money Um, on the longer term longer horizon sea level rise if the sea levels are going up the earlier we plan for that the better And the satellites that we have in orbit now and are planning to build will help to answer some of those fundamental questions. Um, Then there's the projects such as James Webb Space Telescope, which is going to launch next year, looking out in deep space, trying to answer some of the most fundamental questions we can imagine. How long has the universe been around? When did it form? Um, Some very, very basic fundamental scientific questions which can impact humans in ways we don't even know. Um, another example that comes to mind, the Hubble Space Telescope had a bunch of um, sensors to look out into space. And some of the technology for those were then later taken into consumer cameras, just like the camera you have on your cell phone, and improves the picture-taking ability of that. So sometimes we don't know where this technology is going to take us, and we don't know how it's going to impact everyone's life yeah but it certainly does and it's stuff that we need to be making regardless i'm uh i'm glad that i'm really happy to be having this talk with you because yeah i think that there's a lot of um there's probably a lot of people out there with that you know just think like okay we landed on the moon in 1969 it's been a long time so like you know that how is it that we didn't do something more major between then and now you know but uh, everything you just rattled off is super major, like all of it. 
Um, and I guess it also sounds like the degree of difficulty between the moon and Mars is astronomical. It's not like, oh, yeah, it's like a little bit harder to get people to Mars. It is a ton harder to get people to Mars. Getting to Mars is going to be a game changer in terms of technology development. It's a very big deal. Um, but also in terms of having not done anything big, uh, sure, we haven't gone back to the moon, but we had the space shuttle program, which put massive amounts of payload into orbit. We built the International Space Station, which has been up for, well, going on 20 years, I think now. There is a significant portion of the world's population who has only been alive when we have continually had human beings in space, which <laughs> to me is utterly incredible. There have yeah, been people living in space for going on two decades now, yeah. constantly. Yeah, that's, that's mind-boggling to me. It's incredible. Yeah, it really is. It really is. That's so cool, man. So when you're developing stuff and like you guys are trying to, so right now you're, you're doing part of the work for this 2020 mission to, to Mars. Um, what, like given that everything in the world nowadays is centered, is centered around computers in some way or another, and that Moore's law is very much in effect and technology is just so unbelievably rapidly getting better. What is it like, I guess, making, trying to make like space age technologies to actually go into space. And like right now you're making things for a mission that's going to be going down four years from now, like by four years from now, technology theoretically should be mind-blowing compared to the technology right now. So is it like we're going to be launching up all this like um, like ghetto Star Wars looking stuff out into space when uh, really we should be having like super sleek Battlestar Galactica looking stuff or something? Ghetto Star Wars. There's a lot of really cool looking Star Wars. Stuff. Uh, yeah, like I guess the original, like the uh, episode one, two, and three. Like, but yeah, four, five, yeah. and six. That stuff's looking pretty like beat up, you know. Battlestar Galactica was pretty beat up, especially yeah, the new. The <laughs> all new right, maybe, all right, maybe wow. the maybe the wrong analogy, but um, you get what I'm saying. You bring up a really good point, and that's uh, there's this quote, and I don't know where it came from. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good, and one of the things you have to learn as a creator of, of anything, be it electronics or photography or even cooking. If you spend enough time, you wait long enough, you can always make something better. If, if you just wait six months longer, your laptop is probably going to be thinner, faster, and cheaper. But at some point you just have to say it's good enough. And I have to put a stake in the ground and move on. And with technology, it's the exact same way. So what we do when we design any sort of system, uh, and this is generally speaking true in research, in academia, in government, you come up with a list of what are we trying to answer? And for a scientific experiment, that's your list of scientific priorities. What are we trying to answer to what level of accuracy do we need? And you come up with the requirements and then you develop your system to meet those requirements. And once your system is good enough to meet those requirements, you just have to say, you know what? We are building this now. We are moving forward and it will take time to do that. When you look at uh, something like GPS satellites, that technology is 20 some years old or older. And yet that's plenty good for what we do with it. So I don't think anyone would argue that, oh, GPS is old and outdated. Um, you bring up the point of Moore's law. Moore's law applies to a specific subset of the engineering and elect 
uh, electronics field in particular, and that's generally speaking transistor sizes. Um, you can put more transistors in a given area, which means you can do more computing. Uh, going to an example like Mars, we're not so much limited on the computing power we can put on the planet. We're more limited by the amount of data we can get back because you you can't just pull a fiber optic cable to Mars and shuffle all the data you want back and forth. We're relying on relatively slow data links. So the problem we have is it's easy to collect way, way too much data. We just can't get that back. Um, same thing, same problems we have with like Cassini out in the um, outer solar system. It can take pictures all day long, but we can't get that data back. New Horizons, which just went past Pluto, they took data and they're going to be sending back data for the next year or two. How so, are we sending data in space? Just exactly the same where you are on Earth, radio waves. You just need a lot bigger dish on the ground to capture it. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's really slow. Once you start getting out to the Pluto level, you're talking kilobits per second, which is orders of magnitude slower than even your dial-up modems were when people of my generation were kids growing up with the internet. Has anyone ever, I assume, I, I, I almost shouldn't even say this because I'm just going to make myself out to sound like a total idiot, but has, have people like looked into doing like a, um, like a light SOS or something, you know, like a light Morse code, I guess, like any, any sort of way to send data that's not radio waves that would like, you know, a bunch of ones and zeros via light or something? Blake, we're going to make a scientist engineer out of you yet. That is a great question. And people are doing that. People at NASA are doing that. People in private industry are doing that. Exactly. What they want to do is how can you build laser communications in orbit? Because you can send a lot more data over a light beam than you can over a radio wave. So that is a fantastic question. And people are trying to answer that right now. How can we get more data back and forth? Well, you just made my day that, that you told me that I wasn't a total idiot for saying that. There really are no stupid questions at all. And and a lot of these things, it starts with the question of, well, is there some better way to do this? How can we do this? Let's just spitball ideas. And that's exactly what engineers and scientists do. They just, we have this problem. Well, let's just spitball random ideas because you never know where a good idea is going to come from. Yeah, definitely, man. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about that and about your actual day-to-day. So um, let's take... This so first of all, why don't you tell everyone how many jobs you work on at one given time? That varies based on a whole bunch of factors, but typically I work on between two and four um, projects at a time, which for me is a good number. Two to three is kind of optimal because once you get beyond that, it's really hard to juggle all that stuff in your head. How do you go from one project to another project? Yeah, totally. um, I I like to have about fifty percent of my time actually building hardware. So I'm, I'm researching something to solve a problem. How are we going to measure the temperature on Mars? Let's dig into that problem. Let's dig really deep, deep down in the weeds and solve this problem. And then let's build the hardware to do it. And then the other 50% of my time, I like to be Wait more Wait a second. A, Was that an actual example of, of checking the temperature on Mars? Uh, specifically, we're checking the atmosphere going through, checking the temperature of the atmosphere as we're entering Mars. Okay. Uh, the problem with Mars is it has, it has an atmosphere, but the atmosphere is really, really thin. So Earth has a really nice thick atmosphere. So you, when something's coming back from space, you can build a nice big heat shield and it gets really hot on the front of that heat shield because you have a lot of air hitting it and that helps slow your spacecraft down. 
Mars's atmosphere, it's too thick to ignore, but too thin to really be useful. So we can't build a really nice big heat shield to slow us all the way down to the planet with a big parachute. Um, you can only have about a one ton or so of mass landed on the planet with a parachute. Beyond that, we need other technologies. Hmm. Um, so one of the things that uh, the project I'm working on now is trying to do is trying to characterize what does the Martian atmosphere actually look like? Um, Earth, we've characterized that for long, long, long time now. We know where the atmosphere is thinner and thicker and what it does during the day, during the night. It heats up, it expands, it cools down, it shrinks a little bit. We don't have good answers for that to Mars. Um, we don't have good computer models of how hot do things actually get when they're coming into the atmosphere. So we're trying to characterize that. So down the road, when humans go to Mars, we'll have a better idea of how big of a parachute or how big of a engine do you need to slow yourself down? So not including old technologies that we already had um, mm -hmm. from, from previous projects and stuff like that. How many projects total is NASA working on that it's going to need to solve the problem of like getting people on Mars, let's say? Is that like 100 different projects, 1,000 different projects? I, I have no idea because there are subsets within subsets of things. You have to, I mean, the, the big problems are, you can roughly get them into big problems of how do you keep someone alive getting there? How do you get them to the surface? How do you keep them alive on the surface? How do you get them off the surface? And how do you get them home? And that's just huge broad brush jokes. And within that, how do you keep them alive? How do you recycle their water? How do you recycle their air? How do you feed them? What do you do with the garbage? Because you can't just toss it out the window. So there's all these huge subsets of questions. Um, a lot of those questions we have roadmaps to. So we say, well, we know we want to be able to answer that question, say, by 2025. And I'm just making up these numbers. So then we can start to develop the technologies. And by 2028, we'll have a lab demo running. And 2030, we'll launch it into low Earth orbit and make sure it actually works. And then 2035, we'll actually launch the real mission. Hmm. Cool. Uh, and that's where project planning is so important in laying out roadmaps of where you think you want to be and need to be. And that is a whole specialty within NASA is just project planning and project management, keeping these massive projects of hundreds or thousands of people on track, making sure the machine is working well. So you just made me think of something. So we'll take a break here from the, the talking about your day-to-day -day at NASA. Um, so now we're, we're doing all this work with Mars. Like, first of all, why exactly? Should we not sooner just go back to the moon and figure out, like, can we terraform on the moon? Can we grow some crops there? Like, why are we focused on getting people on Mars versus getting people to live on the moon for any extended period of time? Mars is interesting because it's the basically the closest we have to a sister planet. Um, Venus is, is similar and it has a thick atmosphere, but it's not probably as hospitable to life as Mars is. Mars in many ways is similar to earth. It's roughly the same size. It has less gravity, but it, it has an atmosphere. It definitely had liquid water on the surface. At one point, there's very strong evidence that it currently does have liquid water. And a big question in the scientists minds is why doesn't it have liquid water today? Why doesn't it have an atmosphere? What happened? And maybe if we can answer the question of what happened to Mars, that will 
better help us to understand Earth. Because in the grand scheme of things, in terms of life, we have a data point of one, and that's Earth. And in any scientific experiment, a data point of one is really, really bad. So <laughs> Definitely. we really need to try to understand, are there similar analogies out there to Earth to help us better understand these problems? Yeah, for um, sure. And in, in Mars, uh, they actually have a lot of resources we could potentially use on the planet. So it does have an atmosphere. It's got a lot of CO2 and some other gases. So there's a lot of technology development saying, well, maybe we don't have to bring all of our water and air to Mars and rocket fuel. Maybe we can make it there on the planet's surface. Um, there's a lot of minerals in the ground. Maybe we can mine some of those. And if we can do some chemical reactions to it, we can then develop the food and the uh, soil that we need to grow these plants and, uh, and to build them up. And you mentioned terraforming. The moon would be incredibly difficult to terraform in large part because it has no atmosphere. So you're somehow going to have to make or bring the gas there. Mars already does have an atmosphere. Um, if we're lucky, maybe a lot of that gas is trapped in the planet. Is there maybe some way we can release that gas, begin to actually terraform the planet? These are questions we just don't have a good answer to. Man, and it's all so sending, interesting. It's so cool that you get to do this for a living and, and try to, to help figure these things out. That's one of the things that keeps me going every day is it's really easy to get bogged down and focus on the very, very minute details to get lost in the weeds. I personally like looking at the bigger picture. What am I doing? I'm designing this little circuit to measure this temperature, not because it's my job, but because it's going to help put people on Mars in the future. And if I have any say about it, it will be me in 25 years going there. So big picture. And that's, that's what keeps me going every day. Man, I hope it's you. Damn, that would be so cool. Earlier, you mentioned a great quote, which is one of my favorite quotes, by the way. And I haven't thought about that one in a long time, which is the perfect is the enemy of the good. And so that makes so much sense in terms of starting a project and stuff like that. However, when you're doing something like sending people to Mars, like how perfect do things need to be to finish the project, like to actually put something into operation and send something out into space. That's where you come down to your requirements. In the beginning, you have to put a stake in the ground and say, we, we have this requirement. And I'm just going to say, we have to measure the temperature of this thing between zero and a hundred degrees. And we have to be able to measure it accurately within plus or minus one degree. So you develop the circuit to do that. And then you go in the lab and you test it. And if it meets the requirement, you say, you know what, it's good enough. And sure, if I spent six more months, I could make it better, but it's good enough already. Um, for life support, you're going to have to say, well, we need a life support system that will last us 500 days. And you go out and you test it for maybe 500 days or enough time to build up data. And you're confident in your answer. And then you go use it. At some point, you just literally have to put that stake in the ground and say, this is good enough. So you just brought up an interesting point about the 500 days thing. So that, that, that's the one-way trip to Mars, right? It's about 500 days? That would be round trip plus surface time. It on or off takes you about nine, six to nine months to get there. Um, and then you're probably going to be there for a year or so. And then it's going to take you six or nine months to come back. And that's just due to the way the orbits work out. Okay, so we're not going to send people to Mars 
until we have a vehicle that can get them both there and back. We're not going to be like, hey, we're going to send you guys there with a vehicle that can get you there, assuming that like technology, by the time we do that, will be at a point that we could send another one out there to pick you guys up and come back. Uh, NASA and most governments aren't going to do that. There was a project um, who was trying to raise money out there. Um, gosh, I think it was Mars One that they basically said, we're going to send people there one way. So uh, that would be hard to sell to taxpayers in the United States or Europe. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, and I, I don't personally know anybody who wants to make a one-way trip to Mars. Everybody <laughs> I know wants wants to come home. Yeah, for sure. It did not look like fun for Matt Damon at all. One of the really interesting, cool things about your job is that it sounds like you get to do both a um, very like academic and theoretical side of things, and then you also have to do the experimental side of things and like the practical development side of things. And typically for physicists, those are very different realms. You have like theoretical physicists that come up with the stuff, and then you have experimental experimental physicists that actually have to see if these ideas fly and if they work. And from talking to the theoretical physicist I had on the, I'm sorry, the experimental physicist I had on the show, he was saying, yeah, like there is a bit of like jabbing at each other from people in those two camps in physics, but you kind of get to like straddle the fence and like in play on both sides. Um, How does that like, I guess, impact your life as an engineer and as a physicist getting to do both? And is there one that you enjoy any more than the other? Um, So a little bit about my background, I... I'm an electrical engineer by training, but through school, I was working in an experimental physics laboratory. And that's where I got my, my degrees, uh, ultimately earning a PhD in electrical engineering. And I did a postdoc as well in an experimental physics um, lab. I, I personally am much more of a fan of the experimental side of the house. And that's where I spend most of my energies. Um, it is a lot of fun, though to dig into the theory because I, you have to understand the theory I feel to really be a good engineer. You have to know what, what is actually happening on a real fundamental level with whatever I am doing um, to be really, really good in your field, be that engineering or be that baking. Um, I, one of my hobbies is baking. I I love baking breads and all kinds of things like that. So I really dove deep into the theory of how does the gluten develop and how do you optimize that to make a really delicious bread? Uh, Ultimately, I think I succeeded in that. And that was really due to understanding the theory. Um, So to answer your question, I prefer more of the experimental side of the house and answering the questions but I do like to devote some of my time to the theory side, trying to understand what's happening and what are theorists proposing so we can go out to prove their answers either right or wrong. Well, what a cool job for you then that you get to work at NASA. Because from my last interview, it sounded like, you know, for, for most other like scientists or, or high-level engineers – you're not you're not given much of an option to play in the other sandbox. Like you kind of like get put into a single sandbox and that's it. One of the great things I think about working for NASA is they're very flexible to allowing you 
to work on things that interest you. Like any job, there's going to be a, a lot of assigned tasks and you just have to deal with it. Um, but if you go and you express to your manager or your boss that, hey, I really want to do X, Y, and Z, there's usually enough work that they'll try to make it happen. Um, just for example sake, I really mentioned... I mentioned to my boss recently that I really wanted to start working on human spaceflight related activities. And that's why I was put on that proposal for that project to try to build an inflatable habitat on Mars to see if that's possible. That's awesome, man. That's super awesome. So I want to uh, like nerd out with you here in a little bit and ask you some science questions. But before I do that, let's go ahead and wrap up this part about your job in case there's anyone like really, uh, I don't know, like thinking about possibly applying for NASA. Um, are it, like all this just sounds super awesome so far. Are there any negatives to your job at all? Like anything that you don't like? Definitely. Um, sometimes you're assigned to a project that isn't fun or exciting, but that's of any job. Um, one of the biggest drawbacks is that you ultimately do work for the federal government and budget cycles being as they are, projects get canceled with a fair amount of regularity and you have absolutely no say over that. Like it could be a project that you were midway through working on and all of a sudden it's just like, nope, that's not even a project anymore. Uh, exactly. The that, first project. I can't imagine like a more frustrating, terrible feeling than having like a year or so of your life just flush down the tubes. The first project I had at the agency I was working on, I had spent about eight months. I had designed the circuit boards. We'd done a design review, everything. They were literally ready to go. And it was probably a week before we were going to have the hardware built word came down and said, nope, project's canceled. So, and that wasn't actually even the agency's fault. That was back when um, Orbital Sciences was launching one of the resupply missions to the space station and they had that accident. They they blew up out at Wallops Island um, and due to budget issues and things like that, that cost us our project. Damn, crazy. But, you know, it that happens um, and that's not necessarily any worse than in industry where projects get canceled. Um, and then the other issue with the government as well, procurement and buying things can be very difficult and time consuming. The lead time on just doing things with money can be incredibly challenging. The government has all kinds of rules set up for for good reason. So people aren't abusing the system, but if you want some piece of equipment, that's more than $3,500, that's the magic limit. You have to put out a request for quote and you have to allow this open and fair competition and allow anyone to respond, which is great. And I have no problems with that other than it takes months to buy these things. So for any high value item um, where industry can go around and just buy it tomorrow, we don't have that flexibility. And that, that can be particularly frustrating. So the project managers have to build that into the schedules ahead of time. And it sounds like, though, that you probably have a lot more, although you deal with the same sorts of budget cuts and whatever that they would, that you probably have a little bit more job stability than just like a pure researcher at like a university or something would in terms of them having to just constantly write proposals to get grants from whatever, from the university, from the government, from this, from that. There is at least going to be some constant flow of money to like keep you employed and make sure you have a job. So you bring up a good point. Um, and I guess we didn't mention this at the top of the show, but I, I am a civil servant, which means I work for the United States government. I work for NASA. I'm not a contractor. So that basically says that I have a guaranteed job. 
Um, I mean, if you, if you do anything bad, you can definitely be fired for instance, but the process of letting someone go at the agency is a big deal. Um, for letting people go due to budgetary reasons, it's called a reduction in force. And that's usually a congressional thing. And they have to deal with letting people go and how they deal with that. It's a big deal. So there's a lot of job security working for the agency, um, which I mean, to be truthful is, is good and bad. It really promotes the ability to work on just come up with some kind of crazy pie in the sky ideas. Cause you know, you can go to your boss or the funding agency for a proposal and say, Hey, I got this wacky idea and sure people are going to laugh at you, but they're not going to fire you. Um, on the downside, the job security is so good that the agency has a lot of employees who are older. So there's this kind of this gap in age range where you have a lot of very, very experienced, knowledgeable people which is what we want. But then there's this gap in ages of forties and thirties, where there's not a lot of mid range, mid career people. Um, and then now you have a lot of younger employees who are being hired and I'm on the vanguard of the younger employees. I'm in my early thirties, which is hired on a year and a half ago now. Um, so us younger generation, we are trying to absorb as much information as we possibly can from those experienced individuals before they retire because there's this retirement crunch coming to affect the agency. Man, that's really interesting because, yeah, that's not the type of job that you really want to retire early or quit. You know, it's something that be, can become like a fun lifestyle for you. But obviously, with the speed of technology and stuff like that, I, I imagine that's got to get hard to keep up with for a lot of the older guys. The agency is really, really good at promoting opportunities to advance both your professional knowledge, um, and on some of your professional, uh, your personal knowledge, there's all kinds of training opportunities, both internal and, and external. Um, the agency will bring experts from universities or private companies in to give lectures on interesting topics. Um, there's a lot of training opportunities where if you see a company is offering training in say a piece of software that you want to use, uh, if you can make a business case, there's a budget out there to go go to that company and say, hey, I want to take your training course. Um, there's opportunities to go to conferences uh, all around the United States and even the world in some cases to say, hey, I am working on Project X, which deals with this topic. And I think if I went to this conference, it would be worth the money because I'm going to learn about this and meet with colleagues. So there's a lot of effort to try to keep people knowledgeable and up to date about current technology. Hmm, that's cool, man. That's awesome. Um and then what is the is the pay like if you're allowed to talk about that? Because something that blew my mind was when I had the experimental particle physicist on the show say what his pay was. It was just so sad that that you could go to school for that long and be that absolutely brilliant, and that it's just like a, you know it's hard to get paid well. You know, um, you don't work for the government for the money, um, so. If you were to come out of school with a bachelor's degree right now, chances are you'd be hired on uh, as a GS7. So GS is the government pay scale. And this that's all public information. You can look it up online. Um, a GS7, I think, makes about $34-ish thousand dollars a year, I want to say. If you come in with the agency with a master's degree out of school, you will be a GS9, um, 
more than likely. And that's 55-ish, somewhere around there. Uh, if you come in with a PhD, you'll be a GS 11. And that's uh, probably about 62000 a year. Um, and then within there, there's bands. And the longer you're in one grade, the higher your pay is. Um, there's all kinds of locality adjustments. So if you live in the Bay Area, they're going to pay you more than if you live in Omaha. Um, right now, I am a GS-12, and I probably make about 70000 a year, I want to say. I honestly don't know the exact number. Um, the full performance of my current position, which means the highest level I could get promoted to in my current position is a GS-13, um, and I think the starting salary for there is probably about 83000 a year, I want to say. Okay. So, I mean, later, later in life, you could be doing all right. Not to mention that you're, I assume, being a government position, going to have pension and stuff like that. Yeah, there's the whole retirement um, system. And then there's um, other, you know, there's benefits like healthcare and things like that, which are great. Um, that helps. And then uh, there's always the option to go, if you get into the management or really technical level, then that opens up the GS 14 and 15 pay scales, which are higher. Um, and then at the top end, if you get into the very high level management position, so you're running, um, say, a, like the science directorate or the engineering directorate at a center, um, that's called the senior executive service. And that those levels are, if you look it up online, they're probably about 140000 a year. Okay. So it's a, it's a comfortable life if you live in a place like Hampton, Virginia, which has a fairly low standard of living. If you were living in downtown San, San Francisco, it might not be so comfortable. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That will uh, anyone living in San Francisco listening to this right now is like, well, I'm not comfortable living in San Francisco right now. It's a uh, it's pretty hard for anyone. So. Um, and yet, and yet NASA has a research center out at uh, Moffett Field. I know Ames it's research crazy. Right there. Yeah, I, I don't think they get a whole lot of young people right out of college because it'd be hard to make it on $35,000 a year. Oh yeah, definitely, man. Um, all right, cool. Well, let's, uh, let's give people some advice for, um, for if they wanted to work for NASA. And then after that, I'll, uh, if people want to stick around, I'll ask you some of the more just like science theoretical weird questions that I have here. If you want to work at NASA, the best place to start is as an intern when you're in school. Uh, high school, actually, I think even middle school, but definitely high school and college, NASA has a program called um, NIFS, NASA Internships and Fellowships, I believe it's called, N-I-F-S. So if you search for that, that's a national program where students can search for internships at any center and apply for those. Um, that would be a great place to start. You get your foot in the door, you get people know you, you build up your resume. That's where I would start. If you want a permanent position, then the one-stop shop is usajobs.gov. And that's exactly how I applied. Um, I saw that there were there was a position there and I applied. In my case, I actually applied for seven or eight NASA jobs and I got a call back from one of them. So like anything, be persistent. Wow, that's awesome, man. Um, all right, cool. Well, thank you for that. Um, so... Let's move on to some of these uh, kind of just like space related questions. So, Mike, you got to tell me, like, how is it that we're one day going to have space travel in your estimation? Because obviously the speed of light is not going to cut it for us. 
Then, like, the other option, I guess, would be, like, wormholes or something like that. Like, is there any way... So that... But is... Are wormholes basically just, like, teleportation or something, you know? Or are we... Do we need to, like, just bend space in order to travel? Or is there some way that we could possibly go faster than light in order to get around? Uh, What do you mean by space travel? Because we travel to space regularly. Come on, Mike. You know, I'm talking like Star Wars, Star Trek level stuff. You know what I'm talking about. That's, uh, there is no good answer to that question. Uh, there's all kinds of theories out there. I, I wish I could give you an answer. I mean, right now, if we want to go into deep space, we're probably going to have to either send robots or um, have generational ships. I mean, practically speaking, and even that's not so practical. Yeah, so let's would, let's talk impractically speaking. Let's talk like what what does Mike think? Like, are you like a sci-fi nerd at all, or do you like you know just theorize about this stuff of like what might it look like aside from the obviously what you said about generational ships is like a very realistic answer to the question. Um, but I, like I said, I other love, things like wormholes or something like that. What do you what do you think might there might really come up one day for us? I I love sci-fi and I whoever in spacex named their landing barges props to them (laughs) totally man e&m banks that i i love his series of books and clearly someone in spacex does too um i would love for nothing else than to have some sort of an ftl faster than light drive but in the current physics there's nothing right now that shows us having that happen so in my mind there's no clear path but that's probably- what's so great about the current about current physics is that we have so many kind of like non answers and weird, quirky things that are happening that we can't explain anyway. So it's not, you know what I mean? It's like none of those laws do I feel like are, are like, oh, we're never going to get around that one. You know, like there's it's like the door is kind of open because we don't understand a lot of things about physics, it seems like. Oh, absolutely. We don't understand uh, much of it at all. But we're not spending a whole lot of time trying to answer that question of how to go faster than light. I really hope there's some dude out there uh, or lady in a university who's working on this problem right now and is going to have that eureka moment and make that spaceship and make it happen. Um, yeah, we really need like a Mark nothing. Cuban type or something to take that on. You know, that'd be great just to like pay a whole bunch of scientists to just do some like super weird theoretical stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um I mean, I, we, we need a Zephram Cochran to come up with that warp ship. Yeah, for sure, man. Some, some dude sitting in a missile silo somewhere saying, hey, I can make this happen. And builds the Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's see here. How, uh, how long do you think before we have like a permanent space station on Mars? Do you think that we could have one on the moon or is that not even possible really because of no atmosphere like you said before? We could absolutely have one on the moon. We're probably not going to terraform the moon, but in terms of moon base, that was in NASA's plan a few years ago. Um, and what, then we'll just prob- keep on bringing food back and forth the entire time? Uh, well, you could, if you had a big enough dome, for instance, you could make soil and then actually grow food or do hydroponics. Um, and that, that's the only answer for a sustainable colony. Um, and I have a feeling we'll probably have a colony on Mars at some point. And that's ultimately Elon Musk's whole drive with, starting SpaceX was to colonize Mars. Um, I, I mean, I give him a lot of props. He has the money and the vision to do it and he's making it happen. And hopefully that will happen with 
NASA's help and the European Space Agency and anyone else who wants to help. Because it's going to be a it's going to be a team effort. Going to Mars, having a colony there is going to be really hard. We know it's going to be hard, and it's going to take a lot of resources to make happen. Yeah, you just mentioned the European Space Organization. Is China in on the game? Like, like who else is helping out? China is doing their own thing. Um, the U.S. and Russia and uh, European Space Agency don't really work with the Chinese, as far as I know. Um, the United States and the Russian Space Agency, they collaborate on the International Space Station. And U.S. astronauts uh, are riding up on the Soyuz launch vehicle right now until the SpaceX and Boeing capsules are ready to go. They are supposed to start launching SpaceX in the end of 2017 and Boeing in the beginning of 2018, launching to the space station, which is really exciting. I'm so excited to see that. Um, the U.S. is currently collaborating with the European Space Agency on the Orion. So the Orion is going to be the uh, U.S. government's launch capsule and the service module for that, which provides all of the life support or majority of the life support systems and power, things like that. Um, and the engine is being built by the European Space Agency. So they are incredibly active partners on that activity right now. Um, and then on the space station, there's a British astronaut, Tim Peake, right now. And the next crew, I think it's the next crew, is going to be commanded by the German uh, astronaut. So there's a lot of collaboration uh, across the Atlantic with the Europeans. Man, that's which, great. We definitely need it, like you said. I, I love. I mean, I'm, I'm all for open science, open access. Let's work with people to tackle these huge, momentous problems. Yeah. All right. So you, uh, when we were emailing back and forth, you mentioned that, uh, that you worked on uh, Bell for your thesis, which I guess part of what Bell was doing was examining uh, like matter and antimatter and why there is more matter than antimatter. And that was a question that I posed to the theoretical particle physicist when I had him on the show. And he's like, I have no idea, man, like, <laughs> like why there's more matter than antimatter why do you think like you, you really actually spent some time thinking about this. Why do you think we got more matter floating around than antimatter? That is a good question. So a little bit of background with that. Um, as I mentioned previously, I was getting my PhD in an experimental physics lab and I was developing some of the sensors at the heart of the um, accelerator. And in particular, this accelerator is the KEK facility in Japan. Um, I have no idea what that acronym is in Japanese. Um, but the detector is called Bell, B-E-L-L-E. -E. Um, and that's where you have two streams of particles. And one direction is electrons. And the other direction is positrons, so literally antimatter. And at the heart of the detector, they hit each other and they collide. And then by colliding, the constituent components come blasting out. So kind of the analogy is, is if you had two cars colliding, um, if they go five miles an hour, nothing's going to happen. If they go a hundred miles an hour at each other. Sometimes you're going to see a door fly off or a hood fly off. And essentially what we're doing is we're taking a picture of that hood flying off. And if you hit them at 200 miles an hour, sometimes an alternator will come flying out of the engine. And that's how we really understand what's happening inside of the, this matter. So at Bell, they were trying to understand something called CP violation. Um, which ultimately gets down to what you're describing, which is the matter-antimatter imbalance. To answer your question, 
There are a number of current theories within the standard model of physics which do predict the matter-antimatter imbalance. And Bell was able to confirm one of those theories showing why that imbalance happened. The ultimate underlying answer, I have no idea. Science right now doesn't have any good answer to that. I am incredibly happy that it exists, though, because if it didn't, at the moment of the Big Bang, all the matter and antimatter would have annihilated each other. <laughs> yeah, totally. We would not be here having this discussion. Yeah. Um, who knows? Maybe matter and antimatter reactors are going to be useful in the future. I mean, that's going back to Star Trek. That's one of the methods they used to power their warp engines was matter and antimatter. Um, that goes back to Einstein's equation, E equals MC squared. C is a really, really big number. So it doesn't take a whole lot of matter and antimatter to make a whole lot of energy. And then there are other accelerators in the world as well. Uh, CERN, which is the European Center for Nuclear Research. I worked there, did some research for a little bit. That is the world's highest energy collider. Um, and they are uh, looking for things like the Higgs boson, which is a particle um, which is theorized to give mass to other particles. And they were recently successful. Um, CERN is a great example I like to talk to people about because the World Wide Web was invented there. Um, Tim Berners-Lee was working there and he wanted a way to quickly show results to colleagues uh, at CERN and uh, at other research institutions. So he came up with this idea of, well, how about we have one computer call up another computer and it will then send a page of text, basically. And if you have this program called the web browser, you can view this page of text. Wouldn't that be awesome? And so essentially the World Wide Web, which is what we know now and use every day, was developed due to nuclear research as uh, some dude was literally just trying to fix an itch he had one day. Yeah, just a smart guy and, messing around. That's kind of like a lot of the stuff in NASA you were talking about. Yeah, one of the things with research and, and, and really fundamental basic research, we have no idea where it's going to take us. It's really hard to sit someone down in a lab and say, we have no idea what a microwave oven is. Go invent it. Go make it happen. It's really, really hard to do that. And uh, you just oftentimes need to put a bunch of peop- smart people together and see what happens. And greatness can happen. Yeah, you stumble into something when you're not necessarily looking for it. I mean, that's such a great thought and metaphor and whatever for life as well. You know, like that uh, that you shouldn't necessarily just always pull out your your Tinder app, I guess, and like swipe right and swipe left. Like that might not be the best way to get on a date, you know, or like to meet the man or woman of your dreams. Like um, sometimes if you... I don't know, just lay back and go about your life. Like that's the way to allow some of these things to happen. You don't always have to like very intentionally go after some sort of goal, you know, like sometimes goals or, or, or endpoints just like pop up when you least expect it, you know? Yeah. That actually makes me think of, uh, I was listening to your surfing episode and I, I grew up in Hawaii and surfed a lot. And speaking of which, I hope you get out there and go surf. The uh, biggest wave I ever surfed in my life was completely on accident. I was just out in the lineup and this huge wave came in and I was utterly terrified for my life. But looking back on it, it was a lot of fun. (laughs) I sure as heck would have never paddled out that day if I knew that was coming. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you survived it. So uh, you can live to be on the show. Um, Oh, so the question that I wanted to ask you earlier uh, when you were mentioning... uh, 
what you guys were doing with Bell and everything, and that one single piece of the matter-antimatter equation uh, kind of made sense and fit, given the standard model of physics, is there's all these things that are glaringly incorrect or standing out or strange or outliers or whatever in the standard standard model of physics now so when people are doing uh, are studying quantum mechanics or quantum physics are people still always using the standard model of physics as kind of a uh a ruler to judge whether or not something is successful or if we know what's happening or do sometimes like for some studies people just completely throw out the standard model of physics as a benchmark for whether or not something is is working correctly Generally, the standard model is what most people use because it it explains the world to a pretty good degree. Um, yeah, you see, so the other competing mainstream argument, I guess, would be string theorists and, and string theory. Um, but even a lot of string theory is based on the standard model. And it's not like the standard model is this one equation, this one thing. The standard model is this umbrella concept that most mainstream physics kind of fits in and, and answers. But ultimately, physics is looking at the world and trying to understand what is physically happening. And so you don't necessarily need to base your answer on the standard model, but unless you're going to create a whole bunch of new math and a whole bunch of new physics, it's easiest. It's easier to stand on the shoulders of giants and to move forward that way. Yeah, and I guess how do you even, mm -hmm. what are you even supposed to say or talk about or measure if you're not using a standard? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, it'd be like asking someone to tell you the time, but like, you're not allowed to use a watch or what. It's like, okay, well, then I don't know exactly what you want me to do. Um, I guess it's just like a, a necessary thing. Sometimes you come up with really creative solutions, right? Somebody invented a sundial to answer that exact question. Someone put sand in a little glass jar with a hole in it and measured time. So sometimes putting the constraint that you can't use what somebody has already done really opens up your possibility. And that brings us back to the spitballing idea um, and you know, your idea of using optics and light in space. Uh, sometimes we say you cannot use this current technology. You have to think of off-the-wall ideas. Love it, dude. Love it. Tell me about your thoughts on artificial intelligence and like what sort of impact that would have on your job if we came up with some sort of super intelligence, what sort of impact you feel like that might have on space travel and anything else that we've been talking about. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. Just talk about artificial intelligence for a little bit. Well, if AI got smart enough, it might put me out of a job. Um, if it was really creative, it might be able to design, come up with brand new experiments. Um, I have a feeling that it would enable it would take a lot of the mundane drudgery out of day-to-day -day work um so starting with say computers uh back before there were digital computers there were literally human computers people who sat around crunching numbers all day long and then digital computers came along and sped up the routine task of calculations dramatically and then you had um, handheld calculators and then you had laptop computers. Um, nowadays, all of our design engineering software does a lot of those calculations for you by hand. You just set up a simulation, hit go, it does it, it takes the time out of having to do lab tests, which speeds the design cycle up. Uh, I think the first few generations of artificial intelligence 
would take a lot of that drudgery away of even setting up the computer to do what we want it to do. Um, it would take the time out of having to design the circuit board, for instance, or design the structure of your spacecraft. Um, on the other side of that, I could see, and this is the perennial debate in the exploration community, exploration. Is it humans or robots that are going to go exploring? And there's no good answer to that. Um, right now, we focused on robots to Mars um, and probes to Jupiter and the outer planets. Um, at what point are, at some point we're going to have to make the decision, are we going to keep spending money doing both humans and robots? Or are we going to focus on just humans or just robots? And if a really intelligent AI came along and going back to your uh, discussion with Moore's law was enabled by ever increasing technology, that might push the robot side of the equation more favorably. If we had a super intelligent AI, maybe we don't need to send humans to a space station orbiting Saturn. Maybe we can send those probes. Maybe we can send those probes to Pluto and explore for us instead of humans. Man, great point. I I didn't even think about that. Um, Yeah, I guess I I was more just thinking Mm -hmm. about some of the more complicated things we talked about, like, uh, yeah, like faster than light or whatever the hell, but it's so long before we get there is, I mean, yeah, even like if you're talking about 2030, us, you know, possibly sending people to Mars, yeah, why send people that could die? Like, why why would you even do that anymore once you have uh, just sort of some like general intelligence AI around, which I imagine we have to have that around by 2030. I imagine it'll come. Uh, and that actually brings up, uh, just reminded me there was a group called uh, the Breakthrough Initiatives, and they started a project called Starshot, where they want to build very small little computers and put them on solar sails and send them to uh, outer planets like Alpha Centauri. Um, so what, what a solar sail is, is you put a thin sheet of fabric in space connected to a payload, and then you shoot light at it like a laser. And that light bouncing off of that solar sail actually pushes that solar sail because photons actually bounce off of that sail. And our friend Newton says, um, if you push something on one way, the thing's going to go the other way. Um, so that group is saying, well, we're going to send these really small spacecraft to the outer planets. And their initial design is, well, we're just going to take some very basic data points, just maybe a measurement uh, camera and just take one picture if you had a really smart AI on board, maybe that AI could say, hey, well, instead of just blindly taking pictures, I'm going to look over here, here, and here, and then I'm going to send the best picture back to Earth. And that could enable the next round of robotic explorers to say, well, instead of just blindly shooting ourselves out from the planet, we're actually going to intelligently pick where we're going to go. Dude, and like things like that that you're talking about, that's got to be like really close to, like if you just look at how, how technology's moved in just the past few years, like, I mean, I have a feeling like what you just talked about is probably going to be on like the iPhone 7 or something where like you take the, a whole big photo and it's like, no, 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 man, this is the area that you want to be taking a photo of. And it just takes the better photo for you. Don't they already have that feature, actually, where you take like 20 photos in a row and it picks the best one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, of like one certain so area. Yeah. It, no, it is a start. Exactly. Yeah. I 
Yeah. We're we're on a good path, man. We're living at just such a badass time to be alive. Like, can you, can you imagine what everything's going to be like when we're sixty years old or something? We're just going to have like robot butlers taking care of stuff for us. It's going to be awesome. I, I sure hope so. Because the flip side of that is one of us is going to be John Connor fighting off the Terminators. Yes, and that's that's not so bright. Which so. has to be more likely, I guess. I don't know why a robot butler would take care of me and not just kill me and walk away. AI is a double-edged sword. At, at what point is it, does it become intelligent enough to say, hey, I'm kind of enslaved by these meaty water bags. Maybe I should do a robot uprising. Yeah, totally. And it's so funny because all that stuff sounds very like, oh, you're just some like sci-fi nerd or something. But there really is no other logical thing to have happen. You know, like I, I don't understand. Like to your point, why would anything just voluntarily be enslaved if it is a ton smarter than you? Like, I, I just can't imagine that. Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics. Maybe will save us. I guess the. Have you seen the movie Her? Uh, I rings a bell. I don't think I've seen it. Okay, I I want to say so. First of all, that movie is awesome. Uh, that's the movie where they make like the first ever AI, and it's an operating system. Um, and uh, it's uh, Joaquin Phoenix is like the main guy. And I he did has, see that. Okay, yeah, and he like falls in love with his operating system. And yeah. I want to say that the way that that basically ends, if I'm remembering correctly, is that all of the AI, in a matter of, you know, whatever, like one year or something, all of the AI get so bored of their people and I guess to the point of like not wanting to be enslaved and whatever. But so rather than like revolting or what, and I guess they didn't really have bodies, so I guess they couldn't revolt, but they just create their own like heaven or haven or what and they just peace out they just leave they're like you guys are dumb we're out of here and they go and live their better life you know and i could definitely say i mean that would definitely be better than the robots killing us is the robots just being like well we're not sitting around here with you idiots we're just gonna leave and that would be that you know right on uh it's, it's hard to say it could go either way yeah definitely I, I sure hope it doesn't go the terminator way though <laughs> yeah that would not be fun at all mike why don't you um go ahead and leave us off with what is your like favorite thing in science right now what is your favorite um like story to think about your favorite experiment your favorite thing happening in space like just anything interesting that, that really has your interest peaked right now oh boy that's such a great question um I am always interested in so many things. One of the biggest things I'm excited about is SpaceX and them launching their rockets and recovering their rockets. If if they can make the case that reusability is a good business case, that has the prospect to dramatically lower the cost of access to space, which could be a game changer because then they can launch low-cost payloads, which is an enabling technology. So now you can launch a bunch of CubeSats for really low cost. Um, and it's not just SpaceX. There are other companies uh, all over the world who are developing these low cost launching systems that will allow low cost access to low earth orbit, which to me is really going to be a breakthrough technology and it's really game changing. Yeah. What you, when, when you were talking about the CubeSats earlier and like the amount of studies and this and that that you can do because of them, if we somehow make that inexpensive or whatever, I guess what you're saying is that maybe that could be the next, the next computer or the next internet or something. Where like if you were to explain the concept, like that that rudimentary concept of the internet that you mentioned earlier, you know, if you were to explain that to somebody 50 years ago, they'd just be like, 
okay like who cares if someone can see my document like what you know how 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 useful is it all right that's cool i guess like the dude you know in the in the office over can look at this thing that i'm writing right now that's great but you you know it's hard to even it's hard to even comprehend where something will go um and you know obviously now look at what the internet is so you're saying that possibly what spacex is doing right now and lowering the cost that much on being able to run these different studies would just absolutely open the floodgates to like a horde of new technologies absolutely Um, imagine what you could do if you could launch payloads for incredibly low cost right now the cost driver is just physically getting there is what's expensive the hardware is becoming increasingly cheap if imagine if you could have a satellites in orbit for that would just continually take video you could have some camera just videoing your house all day long if you had enough of them um or more practical if you could be taking video uh or regular imagery all the time of major cities you could get the bird's eye view of traffic congestion and you could plan better routes and better light sequencing through new york or san francisco if you could monitor in real time continuously um, drought conditions in Australia or Africa, you could better plan for crop. What are you going to plant and when? What are the yields going to be like? There's just a, a ton of, of things you could do with um, real-time imagery, either stills or video. Um, if you could have hyper-local, essentially, radios, you could bounce signals much easier to, say, airplanes to bring internet to people. Uh, when they're traveling or over the ocean, either an airplane or even um, in a ship. There's just, I think there's a lot of possibilities with low cost access to space for scientific and industrial type payloads and commercial payloads. Yeah, totally. Man, I'm glad that you brought that up. I'm uh, I'm going to put a little reminder in my calendar right now for like four years from now or something to come back and listen to this episode again. And uh, I'm sure that we'll be there, you know? I hope so. And, and then just the general, um, having humans in orbit, we're learning a whole lot about what space does to the body and microgravity, um, how to live in space, which is going to be absolutely vital for going to Mars. Uh, Scott Kelly just completed um, a one-year mission in space along with his Russian counterpart. And there's a lot of information you can learn only by spending a long-term time in space, what it does to the body. And those are the kind of things that we want to learn now instead of halfway to Mars. So <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. That kind of stuff is really, really exciting. And um, in, in some ways, space is a good analogy for aging. Uh, you're, you're, you have higher doses of radiation and microgravity does strange things to the body. So if we can look at what that does to healthy people, astronauts who are all incredibly healthy, we can get a better understanding of what it does to normal people, what aging does to normal people over the long course on earth. Mm, Good point. Yeah. All this stuff is just so interwoven and has so many different uh, applications that you just don't think about. Yeah. NASA, there's a pretty good return on investment for the, for the public's money. I like to think. Yeah, definitely sounds like it. Cool. Mike. Man, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all of the info. This has all been so interesting and just really great talking to you, man. Likewise, Blake. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. 
Hey everyone, it's Blake. Hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I wonder how I could help Blake out. First of all, you are probably the nicest person in the entire world. Secondly, all you have to do is just tell a friend about the show. I would really appreciate it. If you're sitting there and thinking, man, my job is really interesting, or man, I do this totally badass hobby. I should totally be on this show then you totally should be on the show. Just reach out to me on halfhourintern.com, my website. You can email me through there. And uh, if there is another job or hobby that you don't do, but you just want to hear about it, you can submit any sort of idea through the Submit Your Ideas link on the page. Thanks again for listening. Take care.